What a year, huh? 2020. And uh, if there's any gift that 2020 has given us, it's we can all agree that it that the meme game, the internet meme game, has been strong in 2020. All right. And so I want to look at a couple of internet memes from 2020 so far. The first one here is of a knight. It says, me being prepared for 2020, and then the arrow being shot right through the thing. And then you've got the Michael Jordan meme from The Last Dance. Our plans, we came into 2020, we were so excited, it was going to be awesome. And then 2020 happened. (laughs) If 2020 was a slide, anybody feel that way? 2020, man, right? What's our next one? Let's see. Travel plans in 2020 be like, we're going to go to Sydney, Australia, go to the Opera House. And what has 2020 been? It's just been a lot of dishes. And then my favorite one is this one, Billy Mays. 2020 every second is like, but wait, there's more. I saw one just before I came up here this afternoon that was, and it was like, if 2020 were a toy, and it was just barbed wire fence made into like a hula hoop. Or if it was, if 2020 was a pinata and it was a wasp's nest. 2020, right? 2020 has been a year. Um, there's been a global pandemic. There's been lockdowns. There's been quarantines. There's been racial conflict. There's been protests. There's been riots. There's been murder hornets. You guys heard about those? There's been wildfires. There's been hurricanes. And there was a presidential election. This has been a year that has been marked with, by instability and chaos, which has many of us feeling uh, uncertain about the future. It has many of us feeling vulnerable, many of us feeling scared. We all feel a little beaten down, don't we? We're in a sermon series called This Is Our God, and we are studying the attributes of God over the next several weeks. About, we're looking at who is God and what is God like. And the reason that we're studying this topic now at this time, at this moment in our history and in our church's history is because I think that if we're going to keep the faith and if we're going to stay strong and experience peace in the madness of a year like 2020, we need to be reminded who our God is because the world around us is just nuts right now. And one of the things that can stabilize us and give us hope and give us peace in the midst of a chaotic year is by knowing who our God is and what our God is like. You see, we need a vision of God that is greater than the pandemic. We need a vision of God that is greater than our struggles and our trials, greater than our uncertainty. We need a vision of God that can give us something to hold on to in this moment in time when everything feels so vulnerable. And our scripture text today is Isaiah chapter 6. And it begins like this. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 6 verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, I'm going to stop here because this, uh, when we read our Bibles, we might read past a line like this. Oh, in the year King Uzziah died, he's just kind of dating it. And we think, uh, but when Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, it's easy for us to pass over this, but this isn't a throwaway statement. This is, you see, Uzziah was the king in Judah for over 50 years, for 52 years. 
And the Bible tells us that Uzziah was a very good king. Like Israel, the people of Judah, they prospered during Uzziah's reign. This was, he was a good king. And you can read all about Uzziah's life in 2 Chronicles 26. His life ended in a tragedy because of a spiritual failure on his part. But the point of the matter is that for over 50 years, the people of Judah had been led by a good king and they were prosperous. Their nation was stable. And now Isaiah is writing this chapter. As he writes this chapter, Uzziah has died. So just like for us, for the next several years, or for the, for the rest of our lives, we're going to be able to look back and go, hey, remember 2020? And there's going to be all these memories that flood into our minds when we hear 2020. The same thing for the people of God during this time. When, they, when you hear the King Uzziah died, like it is a marker of a time of instability and uncertainty for them. And now Ju the people of Judah are reckoning with a fallen king, and they're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And everything is uncertain. And you know, 2020 for us is very similar to the year that King Uzziah died. It's a year marked by instability. It's a year marked by uncertainty and vulnerability. But God, in the middle of this like uncertainty for Isaiah, God is gracious to Isaiah to give him a vision of the very throne room of heaven. And what Isaiah sees gave him a, gives him a confidence and a strength that he didn't have until he saw a vision of who God was. And I believe that for us as well, there is a confidence and there is a strength that comes when we see God for who he is, just like Isaiah did. And it can transcend and it can overwhelm and overpower all the uncertainty of 2020 if we can simply get a vision for who God is. So look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is Isaiah writing. And he says, he was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic creatures. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one seraphim called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So when God gave Isaiah a vision of his throne room, what Isaiah saw was God's holiness. God is holy. And when we grasp what that means, I believe that it can help us see beyond our present circumstances. It can ease our fears, calm our anxiety, and actually give us a greater purpose in a year like 2020. So what it, holy, 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 the text says, is the Lord God Almighty. That's what the angels were singing. And you notice they didn't say God is holy. They said he is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah wrote this letter in uh, th this text of scripture in Hebrew. And in the Hebrew language, the repetition of words is a way of emphasizing a point to elevate it to a superlative degree. So he, the angels, they're, they're not just saying God is holy. They're singing that God is holy, holy, holy. It's, this is like they're saying he is holy times holy times holy for you math people. He is infinitely holy is what they're trying to say. This is the essence of who God is. He is holy. 
There's a classic book by a guy named R.C. Sproul titled The Holiness of God. And in this book, he says that only once in the sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say that he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is filled with his glory. Another author adds that God's name is qualified by the adjective holy more than all other qualifiers in the Bible put together. You see, Nowhere in the scriptures is God called loving, 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 or mercy, 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 but he is called many times holy, holy, holy. What is God's holiness? Sproul rightly notes that holiness is hard to define because it's a foreign word. It is a, it is a word from the language of heaven. You see, we have many people in our church for whom English is your second language. And if English is your second language, you know better than anyone that foreign words are sometimes difficult to translate precisely into another language. So uh, often you'll see people, if they speak multiple languages, when they're speaking in a language that they're not, that's not their primary language, you'll see them sort of racking their brain for the right phrase because, you know, languages don't match up one to one. And so sometimes you have to phrase it in a certain way. Because some words are difficult to translate. Holiness, however, it's actually, it's nearly impossible to translate in any language because I believe it's foreign to earthly languages. It's a heavenly word. So the best way to describe holiness is that it means to be completely other, completely distinct, to be completely transcendent, to be completely set apart, to be completely different. So one way you may understand this is in New York, here in New York, people will often describe ground zero as holy ground. They'll say ground zero, that's holy ground. It's not to be desecrated. It's to be revered. It's to be honored. That plot of land in lower Manhattan is wholly different, wholly set apart from the rest of the city. The naked cowboy or the cigarette-smoking fake Elmo don't busk at, at ground zero, right? Because if they show, if the naked cowboy showed up to ground zero, there'd be a whole lot of New Yorkers that would be happy to show him where to go. You can do that all over Times Square all you want, but don't you bring that to ground zero. Why? Because ground zero is holy ground in New York. For God to be holy means that he is completely and uniquely other from us. His thoughts are always and only pure, unlike ours. His actions are always and only right and true, unlike ours. His impressiveness, his size, his scope, his influence, his power, his knowledge, his creativity, his justice is completely and uniquely and utterly other from us. You know, we, one of the things we do when we think about God, and this is, this is a bad thinking, is we often think that God is just a better version of us. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, he's just kind of like me, but just better. No, no, no. God is other than you. 
God is completely set apart from you. God is holy, and he is perfect in all of his ways, and it says the whole earth is full of his glory. And when Isaiah comes into the presence of of a holy God, do you think he's like, oh yeah, hey, what's up, God? (laughs) You think he's like, oh, hey, you're here. You know, how you doing? You know, God is my homeboy. Do you think he says any of that? He's overwhelmed by the holiness of God. And look at what he says in verse 5. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, woe is me. So if something is holy, that means it's completely other and it's distinct from everything around it. Means it's to be holy means it's infinitely greater than everything else around it. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever come into contact with something or someone that is so much greater than you. Have you ever just felt the humiliation of being around people or something that is just far greater than you. For me, I remember when I was a freshman in college. So I went to college on a cross-country and track and field scholarship. So I was, that means I was pretty good in high school, okay? Like I had some success and I thought I was the man. You know what I mean? Like I, I, in high school, I beat up on a bunch of 15, 16, and 17-year-olds and I was cocky, and I had signed a scholarship, and I thought I was the man. I thought I was, you know, nobody could touch me. But I remember my very first cross-country meet as a college freshman, my team was assigned a starting box next to the University of Arkansas. Now, I don't, I don't expect you to know anything about NCAA track and field, but what Duke is to NCAA basketball what the Yankees are to Major League Baseball, what the Los Angeles Lakers are to the NBA, that is nothing in comparison to what the University of Arkansas is to NCAA track and field. Uh, They they have won 46 national championships, okay? But they used to do this thing where their athletes would get the tattoo of the Razorback logo on their right arm if they were an All-American. So you couldn't get a tattoo unless you were an All-American. And I remember as a college freshman, pimples on my face, you know, I'm standing next to the, the Arkansas Razorbacks and I look over and all seven of their athletes have the Arkansas Razorback tattoo, which means they're an All-American. And two of those guys had the Olympic rings tattooed underneath And those rings were fresh because those guys had just been to the Athens Olympics just a month prior to that. And here I am, imagine me, 18 years old, standing next to seven guys that sit with tattoos that signify they are all Americans. And two of these guys have tattoos that signify that just a month earlier they had run in an Olympic final. I was a boy among men. My little high school all-state, you know, medals meant nothing in the presence of someone who had competed in the Olympics. And I remember thinking on that line, oh man, what have I got myself into? And then the, you know, the official goes and he raises the starter pistol and my knees, I can still remember it like it was yesterday, were shaking so bad I felt like I was going to fall to the ground. And the gun goes off and I never saw those guys again. Woe is me, I thought. 
You see, those guys were significantly greater runners than me at that time. And it humbled me, and it struck fear into my heart. It made me quake and shiver and shake in the presence of their greatness. You see, when you find yourself in the presence of something or someone that is massively greater than you, it makes you feel small. But Isaiah didn't find himself in the presence of some good runners. He was in the presence of a holy God. And he cried out, he said, woe is me. And this, Isaiah is not feeling superficial inadequacy like I did. He feels all of his impurity, all of his sin. He feels the weight of all of his unworthiness in a single moment in the presence of a holy God. And that word woe is a word of God's judgment. Isaiah is saying, God, send your judgment on me. I don't deserve to be in your presence. It's actually a word of rebuke. And Isaiah was a prophet, which meant that he had said the word woe many times, but he had said it as a prophet to people and said, woe is you because the judgment of God is going to come down on you. But now, here he is saying, woe is me. He's calling down God's judgment on himself. You see, Isaiah has spent all his life as a prophet pointing out the sins of others. But when he encountered God, he saw his sin for what it was, and he saw himself for who he was. And you know, I often wonder when I hear other Christians who so easily criticize every church they've ever been a part of, or other or Christians who find it so easily to criticize every other person they've ever seen, or it's so easy for them to find pick what is wrong with everybody else, I wonder, have you ever really sat in the presence of God? Because it's easy to feel self-righteous when you're comparing yourself to other people, but those who have sat in the presence of a holy God, they see their own sin and self-righteousness withers away, doesn't it? Listen, there's a time for us to be prophets and to announce, woe is you. But those words will always be empty if we have not first sat in the holy, in the presence, uh, the holy presence of God and cried, woe is me. You see, Isaiah, who spent his whole life rebuking others, now sits before God Almighty in all of his holiness and says, woe, woe is me. God, send your judgment on me. I deserve it because I don't deserve to be in your presence. I'm just a man, a sinful man, and you are a holy God. I can't even be in this room with you. He says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And this word undone, it could, it could be translated as falling apart or disintegrating. I like the word disintegrating. I think of Thanos snapping and just Isaiah being like, I can't be in the, just falling apart. God is holy. And when we're in the presence of a holy God, we ought to feel small. And, and you know, I, I think we, many of us believe and say so many lies and untruths about God. We've bought into this idea that God is just this cosmic buddy in the sky who's just there to make us feel good when we're sad. Or we think of God as like a cosmic vending machine who gives us certain blessings if we put the right amount of currency and press the right buttons. We view God in such trivial ways. We don't see him as holy. And when we don't see God as holy, that's when we start to make demands on God. 
That's when we start to place expectations on God. That's when we start to tell God how he ought to act and how we would act if we were God. That, the nerve, you know what I mean? But we do it because we, we view God with such trivial, with triviality. But if we were to see God as holy, we would shut up and we would get on our faces and bow before him for who he is. 1 Timothy 6.16 says he dwells in unapproachable light. Who do we think we are when we try to tell God how he ought to be God? You see, if we captured a vision for God's holiness, we would approach him with far more humility. Instead of shaking our fists at God every time he doesn't act the way we want him to, we would fall on our faces and beg him for his mercy and thank him for his mercy. And when Isaiah saw God in his fullness, he said, look, I'm not even worthy to be in this room with you. And you're like, Pastor Will, whoa, this is some depressing stuff. Let's talk about the light and fluffy God, you know. But we're going to talk about God as love next week. But you can't understand God's love if you don't first understand his holiness. If you understand that God is holy and that you have no business being in his presence, then you'll begin to see how loving he is when you realize that he steps into your presence so that he can redeem you and make you righteous and holy. So look at what happened with Isaiah. It says in verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So I want you to imagine this. This is kind of like mythical creature kind of thing, but like you've got an angelic being that flies over to the altar and picks up a burning coal. So it's a flaming coal and starts flying towards you. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that flames usually mean God's wrath and God's judgment. And Isaiah, here he is in this vision of God, sees a heavenly creature with flames coming toward him. What do you think Isaiah's thinking? Oh man, <laughs> it's over for me. I'm guilty. And this, this coal, this burning coal is coming toward me. I'm done. Things you need to understand about uh, burning coal first is that fire represents God's wrath. And, you, and he would th- I'm sure he was panicking thinking he was going to be destroyed. But the coal, the creature comes to him and it, the coal touches Isaiah's lips And Isaiah isn't overwhelmed and destroyed. In fact, the opposite. He feels his guilt and his unworthiness and his inadequacy drift, lift from his shoulders and from his body. And the creature says, your sin is atoned for. Now, how did this happen? This happened because the coal came from the altar where a sacrifice had been made. God's wrath towards sin his anger and his judgment toward your unworthiness and my unworthiness was absorbed into that sacrifice. The burning coal no longer carried God's judgment within it, but it carried God's forgiveness. Whatever innocent lamb had been slaughtered on that altar, it had absorbed Isaiah's sin. And when that coal touched Isaiah, Isaiah wasn't destroyed but he was made new. This is what I want you to see. This is what happened at the cross. 
You say, why, why, did the, why, did the, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? It's because God is holy. And how could we ever enter into God's presence, eternity with God, the kingdom of God, if we are not holy? We would be complete. It's like the sun, right? If you go too close to the sun, you will be disintegrated. Same with us. If we are impure, as Emily said, if we walk into the presence of God, His holiness is so great and powerful and grand and mighty that we would just be completely overwhelmed. And so God needed to do something to make us holy so that we could enter into His presence. And so He put on human skin and came into the world as Jesus. And Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. All of God's anger and heartbreak toward your sin was directed toward Jesus in his body on the cross. Jesus absorbed your sin and mine. And then he rose from the dead and he comes toward us just like this burning coal, not to destroy us, but to cleanse us and to invite us into his kingdom and to make us new. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Hoover Dam or if you've ever seen a picture of the Hoover Dam. It's this massive structure. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're standing at the foot of the Hoover Dam and you're going, wow, this is majestic. This is amazing. This is great. This is this big thing. And you're just in awe of it. And you think to yourself, man, if that dam ever broke, <laughs> the water that that is backed up behind that thing, it would be, it would be crazy. And then as you're looking at it, you see a brick pop out and water starts pouring out of it. And you're like, that doesn't look good. And then another one, pop, pop, pop. And then you see the whole thing start to crumble. And you're standing at the base of it and you're thinking, I'm done. And millions of pounds of water are rushing at you and you stand no chance There is nothing you can do in that moment to protect yourself from the wrath and the judgment of that water that is coming towards you. And you're standing there and you're just going, all right, here it comes. And then imagine that as it's rushing towards you, all of a sudden the ground in front of you opens up and the water just absorbs into the ground and you're standing there completely whole. See, this is what happened on the cross. All of your sin, it has, it, God pours out all of his judgment on your sin into himself in Christ. He absorbs all of his judgment toward you into himself, and you're standing there, and you are free. And you are not overtaken by God's anger and his judgment, but you have been spared from it. Because Jesus has taken it into himself. And then Jesus, after he dies on the cross, he raises, he gets out of the tomb and he walks towards you, not, with, not intent to, 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 to shame you or throw guilt upon you, but he says, hey, look, I've, I've absorbed your sin. Now come with me. And Jesus takes us by the hand and walks us right into eternity, into the kingdom of God. That's the holiness of God. In verse 8, it says, Isaiah says, And then, after all experiencing all of this, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. 
You see, what happens when you've experienced the holiness of God and you've lived? Changed. You're transformed. Remember Judah at this time, this is the year that King Uzziah died. This is a year of instability and uncertainty. And they're looking for prophetic leadership and wisdom. And everybody's scared and everybody's shaking and nobody knows how to lead or what the future is. And God says, who's going to lead? Who's going to speak up? And Isaiah, now that he, after experiencing the holiness and the goodness of God, he, he says, here I am, send me. And what gave Isaiah the confidence and in the power of God in that moment? Isaiah had seen a vision of God's holiness. And he no longer was dwelling on the lost kingship of Uzziah, but he was focused on the power and the capability of his God. And many of us, I know it, many of us right now are tempted to just veg out and just drift through 2020. We're like, just wake me up when it's all over. Meanwhile, I'm just going to be Netflixing. I'm just going to be scrolling my phone. Just tell me when it's over. But what our world needs right now are not people content to sit down and ride this thing out, but our world needs people with purpose and people who, who have the confidence and the courage and have the vision to stand up and lead and show us the way. The world needs people who have a vision for God and his glory and his holiness that dwarfs the problems of 2020 in comparison. See, the world needs people who can say, yes, 2020 is uncertain and unstable, and we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we've seen a vision of a holy God, high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and he is not moved or shaken by coronavirus or 2020 or murder hornets or hurricanes or wildfires or political instability, whatever. He is sitting on his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple, and there are angelic creatures that are singing then, and they're singing today, holy, holy, holy is he, because he is almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. And he has wiped away my guilt and he will hold me fast through this year and whatever may come in 2021. We have a holy God who is bigger and greater and infinitely other than all of our problems in 2020. And so we can sit with confidence and peace and trust and hope and security knowing that Jesus is still on his throne and that we're going to be okay. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your holiness. We are not worthy to be in the presence of your holiness. God, you're too great. You're, you're so much better and bigger and greater than us. But what makes your holiness so incredible is that even though we don't deserve to be in your presence, God, you came into ours. And you made us holy so that we can live with you and walk with you and have a relationship with you. And so, God, I pray that before we ever try to grasp your love or your mercy, God, we recognize that because of your holiness, we don't deserve any of it. Your love, your grace, your mercy, all of it is an undeserved gift. And God, because you are holy, we recognize that you're bigger than our problems, you're bigger than our fears, you're bigger than this time in history that we live in. 
And so, God, we, we surrender ourselves to you. We give what we can to trust you in the midst of this crazy year. We believe that you're bigger, and it's in your name we pray.